There it goes, deep into center field. Way, way back goes Matty Alou, and that ball is in Astro orbit. And the little dynamo, the toy cannon, now has 76 runs batted into the year. What a shot. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Episode 9 of Toy Cannon Cannon. I'm Vic Ragupathy. I'm Jacob Wessels, and today we have a very special guest. We are joined by perhaps the podcast's number one fan, and my granddad, Gary Lightman. Well, it's a pleasure and an extreme honor to be on your podcast. I uh, would like to believe, and I think I am, your number one fan. The 0-1 pitch. A liner off Nagy's glove into center field. The Florida Marlins have won the World Series. We start off on October 13, 1960, at Forbes Field in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The Pirates, ringless over the last 45 years, are in Game 7 against the Mighty Yankees, whose run differential through the first six games of that series stood at plus 29. The Yankees had also won eight of the previous 13 World Series. The Pirates were about to be a champion unlike any other. For one thing, when Bill Mazeroski's homer put Pittsburgh up for good in the ninth, they not only became the first champion to overcome such a run differential and the first team to win a World Series on a walk-off home run, but they also had one thing no other champion ever had. It's very early, but any guesses? Jake, have you oh, probably boy. Well, I can tell you right now that I remember where I was when Bill Mazeroski hit that home run. Oh, yeah? I was, yeah, oh, yeah. I was in fifth grade, and I brought secretly a transistor radio to school because that was a weekday if I recall the way I know it was the game and I was able to listen to that game from my little transistor sneaked in radio but I still don't know where you go but other than that you know it's a little uh, old age experience but I don't know what it is that they had that no one else had I, I do know where you're going uh, but I'm not going to spoil it yet. Yeah, it'll get revealed. It's one of your favorite things to talk about, and and I can I can let's just say I can picture Bill Mazeroski rounding third base. Yeah, I, he, I know what he's got going on. Yeah, if you have the visual, if you have the visual of that, you can see, or you will be able to see what I'm talking about eventually. But to comment on the the transistor radio story, which is wonderful, um, that's one thing that we've sort of missed. But I don't know if we've missed it or if it's um, in, in some ways better for us. But Jacob, through our entire lifetime, we've had World Series games always at night, right? Or in like Saturday yeah. evening. No, no day games for the World Series for us, right? That is true. Yeah, I, I will say, and, and we'll, get, we'll get around to this when I do mine. One thing that I did realize that we're missing out on, though, and it kind of in the transistor radio era, is that there is something magical about reading about baseball games in a newspaper. It's very fun to like, you know, kind of discover it in that way. And, and that is something that we, we do miss out on, you know, in a, when everything, you know, is instant news. Um, and I had a lot of fun doing research for mine today that it mostly involved reading from local newspapers and stuff about recaps of games. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But we fast forward to July 21st, 2012. The Chester Valley Little League fields in Malvern, Pennsylvania. A neutral oh site 
the John Klein District 27 Championship between Berwyn Paoli and Great Valley. BP had been a juggernaut through that whole tournament, even beating Great Valley a couple rounds earlier. That game was a romp, but this one was a battle. Locked at three after a full six innings, BP held Great Valley scoreless in the top half of the seventh. Base runners came aboard early, and a 1-0 single with no outs was all that was needed to clinch victory and the tournament championship in extra innings. That great historic team, I'm pretty sure that was the last one from BP to date to win a district tournament, which, of course, I happened to be on. Had two uh, things. I was waiting for that. I thought, thought that had to, be, had to be coming. Of course, of course. I was the, the starting catcher for that team. No big deal. But uh, that, that great historic BP team had two things in common with the scrappy Pirates team from more than 50 years earlier. A series-winning walk-off hit and iconic, clean, aesthetically pleasing vest jerseys. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You're right. So Very cool. So I'll go on a pre-vest jersey aside. As a player on the Devin Stratford John Klein team that year and the starting left fielder for the team that was eliminated in, I think, semis without ever getting to play the, um, the Berwyn Paoli juggernaut, this is, a, this is a deep scar for me. That season included one of the greatest baseball games I ever played. Um, uh, probably the best single play I ever made. And that says a lot about my baseball career. <laughs> that happened when I was like 12 playing John Klein baseball. But uh, great season nonetheless. And that strikes a you know, sore, sore thumb for me. Yeah, that was a, a peak moment of my baseball career. That was definitely the peak year of my baseball career was that. And I think what really set the tone and made me realize early on, okay, I've made it. Or, okay, this, this is going to be a big year is when we first received our vest jerseys. They had red undershirts. They were white jerseys. When it got really hotter, if we were playing away games, we just wore the jersey underneath. But typically, we wore the vest and the whole thing. And it had fake buttons. It was like a pullover vest. But still, it felt very real. And the vest jersey is something that we've, for the most part, lost from baseball. Um, with the exception of the Rockies are the ones that really regularly use it. And and we see some alternates sometimes. Last year, the Reds were having fun because they had an anniversary year. They had a lot of sleeveless jerseys. Um, But vest jerseys actually came about in the late 30s and early 40s with the Cubs. And the 1939 Cubs got a vest jersey as an alternate. And then eventually they liked it so much, it became their home and away jerseys. Theirs quickly went away, but the vest jerseys came back the next decade in 1956 with the Reds. Not only did the Reds adopt vest jerseys starting that year, I think that was Frank Robinson's first year. And so the vest jersey saw early champions in Frank Robinson and Ted Klazuski, big clue, who is you know, this huge, strong guy who we might canonize at some point that notably always wore sleeveless jerseys even under his vest. And so, you know, really showing off the biceps and the tries. The Reds were quickly joined by the Pirates. 
the A's, the Indians through the 60s, the Orioles eventually had some, but the Vest jersey died in 1972. However, like the Grand Phoenix, the Vest jerseys rose again a couple decades later when the alternate jersey craze was adopted in the 90s and the early 2000s. And in that time, a ton of teams, a ton of teams, the Blue Jays, the Devil Rays, the Diamondbacks, the Indians, the Mariners, the Angels, the Marlins, the Pirates, the Rangers, Rockies, Royals, Reds, Twins, and White Sox all wore vests at some point. There was a craze. It's like the 80s craze of the powder blue that I think at one point like 10 to 12 teams had. Like the Twins had some, the Cardinals obviously, the Phillies obviously. A ton of powder blue in the 80s. It was that same way with vest alternates. And for the most part, I think they all work. They're all fantastic. I, the, the color contrast between the vest and the undershirt, sometimes they're the same color. Even then it works, but I think you're kind of wasting the concept if you do that. Like the Rockies today, they wear a vest jersey, but it's black on black. And like, it should be purple on black or white on purple or white on black or, or white on purple. I don't know. Nonetheless, it's slick. It's clean. It gives you freedom of movement. And it's closely tied to huge, huge moments. We've already talked about two of the biggest moments in baseball history, the 1960 World Series, the 2012 District 27 John Klein tournament. You know, we're talking about massive, massive watershed moments in baseball history. It doesn't just stop with those two. October 26th, 1997, Cleveland, Ohio. Jacob, I don't know if you know this, but your field. Oh, yeah. I, I, I'm the Jacob of Jacob's field. Yes. Okay. I always thought so. Five-year-old franchise is pushing one of the longest snake-bitten clubs in MLB to a seventh and deciding game. Bob Costas said at the time, Indians fans have been waiting for this since 1948. Marlins fans had been waiting since Tuesday. It was a tight game all the way through. Craig Council tied it at two, scoring Moises Alou on a bottom nine, two-out single. And then in the 11th, again with two outs, and the series-winning run 90 feet away, represented by Craig Council, Edgar Renteria slaps a ground ball to center to bring him home. Now that happened the season before the Diamondbacks even became a franchise. Four years later, they were in the World Series, taking on a Yankees team that had been champions of the world for the past five years, including 75% of the time that Arizona even existed as an MLB franchise. This time, though, the underdogs won handily in their games, and the pinstripes squeaked by in their wins. The D-backs had a plus-22 run differential, a far cry from the Pirates in 1960. Game seven was on Sunday, November 4th, scoreless through five and a half. Arizona struck first. The Yankees tied at the next inning, went ahead in the eighth, and then had the greatest closer ever on the mound in the ninth. Tony Womack tied the game with a double, and Craig Council, hey, he's back, was hit by a pitch to load the bases and bring up Luis Gonzalez. The infield is it. Gonzalez, who hit 57 home runs that year, fouls off the first pitch. Then he fights one off to center field, where an aggressively positioned Derek Jeter watches it drop to the grass, seemingly without a threat. Jay Bell crosses home plate, met only by the outstretched arms of teammate Matt Williams. 
two indelible World Series images just five years apart, both in best jerseys. There are two moments that you can think of and immediately the final hits spring to mind. They're so classic. And that's three in total, three World Series winning hits that happened in Vest jerseys. I don't know if you've seen Aladdin, but if you look at Aladdin and you look at a lot of other characters, a lot of other genie characters, when they pop out of their lamps, because they're sporting Middle Eastern attire, many of them are wearing vests. So I don't think it's a stretch to say that vests themselves are pretty closely tied to magic. <laughs> I will say I've got a lot of I've got a lot of, I've got a lot of commentary. For one, the your perception of the '97 Marlins team is the perception of the '97 Marlins team that I think gets thrown around a lot. Well, maybe not yours, but the perception that Bob Costas had and whatever. The Indians were this waiting juggernaut, and the Marlins were like this upstart team that couldn't even win their own division. Whatever. I was shocked. I looked back at this World Series a few weeks ago. The Marlins are the better team. Yeah. And probably deserve to win that World Series on talent. So I just want to clear up that bad rap. I'm going to probably do a canonization of the 97 Marlins at some point to talk about their players and what that meant, whatever. Um, but secondarily, one of the greatest missed rebranding opportunities of all time was when the Brewers redid their uniforms this offseason and did not switch to vest uniforms. Craig Council, the manager of the Brewers, Craig Council, Best uniform hero. You put that man in a best uniform, he's winning a World Series, all right? So I don't, I mean, the Brewers, if they're ever going to win a World Series, they got to switch to the best uniforms. I think that's scientifically proven. Yeah, I think that's best magic coming back to bite them because Craig Council has to be in a best uniform or else, you know, his players are going to make awful gaffes in the, in the wild card game. And the other wild card team is going to go on a crazy improbable World Series run. Exactly. That's the Brewers. The Brewers are World Series champions if they're wearing best uniforms. Frank Grisham makes that catch, no doubt in my mind. Surprisingly, the Brewers, they're not one of the franchises to really have a vest jersey. If you look at some of those franchises, they're mostly like on the fringes, like the Blue Jays, the Marlins, the Diamondbacks, you know, the Pirates. They're not like these crazy storied franchises. Obviously, the Pirates have been around for a long time, but it's typically newer franchises, you know, not really like your Yankees, your Red Sox. Those are the kinds of teams that are being taken down by the vest jerseys. The vest jerseys are a are uh, an anti-establishment jersey almost. Yeah, I, I feel you on that. I, I think one of the things about vest jerseys that's just fascinating to me personally is like, I know you've been obsessed with vest jerseys and you always talk about vest jerseys, whatever. To me, I never really process how many teams wore vest jerseys because I think they are so seamless looking that honestly, I have a hard time recognizing it's a vest and not that it's just a jersey with different colored sleeves. Oh, we'll talk right? about faux vest jerseys. Like, like, I, like, I think to me, like the Rockies, despite, like, not even now, the Rockies back when they had their pinstripe vest jerseys, that was always, that was never a vest jersey to me. That was always just a jersey with weird sleeves. Like, I don't know. I feel like that's something that I've always kind of, I just never really realized how prominent they were. We can have a faux vest conversation now. I mean, that, that's got its moments too. Go back to June 10th, 1997 in Kauffman Stadium. One of the greatest catches of all time when Jim Edmonds goes straight back for a ball right over his head, lays out, glove towards the wall, 
right by the warning track, somehow comes down with it. That's a faux vest jersey. That's a jersey. It looks like a vest jersey, but the sleeves are a different color. And that's not the only amazing catch to be made by someone in a faux vest jersey. Even if you go back to a few years ago, uh, in March of 2017, the World Baseball Classic, Manny Machado strokes a sure fire home run, you know, to deep center field. Adam Jones, teammate on the Orioles, goes back for it. We've all seen the catch. Robs him his home run. Nothing Manny can do but tip his helmet Adam Jones' way. He just knows his teammate did something miraculous. And that happened in a faux vest jersey. And clearly MLB likes the vest jersey aesthetic. I'm wearing right now a Players Weekend jersey from a couple of years ago, specifically a Reese Big Fella Hoskins jersey. And it's red. It's a really nice red with a blue accent on the sleeves. So obviously MLB likes the look of a vest jersey, but I don't know why teams aren't jumping right in. And, you know, even it should be around more as an alternate even. I, I think one of the reasons actually why we see, we see less vest jerseys, and this is all just speculation, obviously, is because you've talked about, you know, alternate jerseys being a way to like sell additional uniforms. I don't know if people are looking to purchase vest jerseys. Like, I think it's a weird thing to wear and it requires a lot of like, you know, whatever. So I think it's likely just that vest jerseys don't sell that well. So if they can release like a powder blue alternate or like a cool colored alternate, it's much easier to sell that and then people can wear it like a normal baseball jersey than, you know, have like the issues associated with, uh, you know, wearing a vest jersey. Do I wear like an undershirt? Do I not wear an undershirt? How does it look if I don't wear an undershirt? The whole thing is just kind of weird. You kind of need the Kluzewski or Dietrich biceps uh, to really pull off the, the vest jersey, no undershirt. Uh, you got to defend the outfit you're wearing there, Vic. You look pretty studly in that, I got to admit. Well, yes, yeah. I, I appreciate that. And that is one solution is that if teams make vest jerseys, they can sell them as faux vests. I just think it's a great look. Even if teams start to do the vote, the faux vest thing, there is a good look associated with the faux vest as well. And as we talked about, some great moments there. And there'll be ads all over jerseys, and there may not be enough uh, advertising space on a vest jersey. Maybe, maybe. Too, you lose the sleeves, which I think do kind of give you a, another venue, you know, for, for, for content. Right, that's true. That's true. Who knows? I mean, if uh, the companies getting advertised are okay with some of the beefier players maybe cutting off the undershirts, maybe they'll be okay with undershirts, but... Uh, that's true. A sleeve real estate is pretty crucial for the future of uniform advertising. No, I was going to say, when you have biceps as big as mine, you could put a lot of ads on there. The thing is, your biceps themselves are an ad for whatever protein powder you're obviously using. <laughs> I'll have to call them. Tell them I'll save my left bicep for them. Um, there are great vest moments that we haven't even talked about yet. Like the 98 Mariners jersey. That's the year that Lou Pinello won his, went on his iconic, crazy, hat-kicking rant at, again, Jacobs Field, protesting a double play call. And I think he kicked his hat maybe like 10, 12, 15 times around the diamond before tossing it out in the crowd and getting it tossed right back into him. 
He's wearing a vest jersey for that. In fact, you know who's a big fan of the vest jersey? Ken Griffey Jr. Ken Griffey Jr. liked the home vest jersey so much that the Mariners adopted this plan where they all the players took one of their road uniforms, right? They've got a they've got a set of road grays, like a rotation, so they can wear them back to back to back days. And they all took one of them and just cut the sleeves off and then got them all hemmed. And so for the rest of that year, they went on playing with a kind of unofficial road alternate gray that was a vest jersey, just because Ken Griffey Jr. was so keen on them. Ken Griffey Jr., in fact, hit his 500th home run in a vest jersey playing for the Reds. And he looks, he certainly looks real clean in that. They could definitely bring back their vest jerseys. I think they got a great reaction from the people last year when they were bringing back all the jerseys from their history because it was a big, what was it, like the 150th anniversary of their franchise or something like that? Something like that for the Reds. Yeah, something like that, something big. I mean, how about the White Sox? The 2005 White Sox is one of the great forgotten teams of all time. They played the first two games of the ALDS against the Red Sox in vest jerseys. They won both of those, including a big 14-3 route in game one. That propelled them to a sweep. That White Sox team lost one game all postseason. They weren't wearing vest jerseys the whole time, but I'd like to think the fact that they included that in the rotation is what made them so dominant. There's also 2002, the Athletics won 20 games in a row. And as we know, on that 20th game, they almost blew an 11-run lead, but they didn't, as dramatized in the film Moneyball. Right? Their opponents that day, the Kansas City Royals, were wearing vest jerseys. So the vest magic didn't quite work out for them in the end, though they were able to come back from an 11-0 deficit. However, the last moment I'm going to talk about comes way, way before that. When the Vest Magic once helped Kansas City and the Athletics at the same time. It was when they were the Kansas City Athletics, in fact. On September 25th, 1965, they trotted out a 59-year-old Satchel Paige as their starting pitcher. They were playing the Red Sox, who weren't that great of a team, but had the foundation of the impossible dream pennant winning team that would come two years later. Satch came in and uh, was facing some overconfidence, shall we say, from the Red Sox, particularly from Tony Canigliario, um, who was in his second year in the big leagues, young phenom, and was sure that he, of all people, as the young bull and the, the next big thing in MLB, could take on Satch and come out the victor. Well, at just shy of 60 years old, probably, like we don't even know what his real age is. He could have been a good deal older than that. Satchel Page pitched three innings and allowed just one hit, a double in the first inning to Carl Yastrzemski. Tony C. couldn't hit him. Neither could the rest of the Red Sox. He made it once through the lineup and... He didn't give up a single run, only that one hit through three innings. And all the while, Satchel Page did that and made his last major league start wearing a vest jersey. And it just goes to show that when you're the best, it's never too late to come back. And when you're the vest, it's never too late to come back. So 
best jerseys, 2020 and beyond. We got to see it. I'd like to see best jerseys. I'd like to see baseball back for starters. Yeah. Hey, maybe we can get best jerseys in the KBO. Yeah. <laughs> no best jerseys in the KBO, right? All regular jerseys. We've been watching the highlights every day and compiling them. Uh, yeah, I didn't see any. So you've expressed your take on vest jerseys. What is your take on the sleeveless jerseys the Mariners wore for like that throw forward night or whatever? Turn, it, turn ahead. That was great clock. fun to see most crews just rocking the, yeah. Yeah, they brought those back, I think a couple years ago, like in 2018. And they were cool then, honestly. And they're set for 2027, I think because I think they use them in 97. So we'll see in seven years if the Mariners actually do make good on that and bring them. I like them. I know. I think they're kind of divisive from what I gather, but I'm, I'm in favor of them. At least they're different. It's cool. I mean, like, D. Gordon was, like, wearing his untucked. It had his hat backwards like Griffey was. And – you know, I, it was just cool. I think it was a really bold choice of theirs to give themselves completely new colors. Like they're saying 30 years from now, we're not going to be anywhere close to the blue, green, even like yellow. Yeah, I, their I, colors suck. I think the uniforms would be very cool. It was the same uniform, same design, but they had the traditional Mariner colors because the new maroon, gray, it was terrible. Yeah, it just doesn't make you think of the Northwest at all. Like it looks like... Like, it looks like something the Reds would have or something like that, um, or we would have. But if they use that with the blue, aquamarine, whatever teal colors that they have now, yeah, I think that's a winner. Yeah, that's my take on it. I think they're cool. I don't think they're as cool as the people on the baseball internet were going on and on about. I feel like they got a lot of praise, and I feel like their praise was like, yeah, it was, like, pretty cool, but it wasn't the craziest thing ever. Yeah. In general, though, I mean, the Rockies are doing it now, right? The Rockies were doing it when Matt Holiday definitely didn't touch home. He wasn't wearing his vest jersey. That's black on black. It's cool. It at least keeps them. That gives them somewhat of a foothold. And the, the World Baseball Classic using them and Players Weekend using the faux vest, I think shows that vest jerseys are still – very fashionable. So hopefully we see them soon. I don't know who's going to be the ones to bring them back. It might have to be the Reds or something like that. One of the original. And I, I really like your angle that vest jerseys are the jerseys of underdogs because that really is is true. That's you know what they rep- represent. It's not the traditionalist baseball. It's you know kind of the new ex- expansionary baseball and like that kind of stuff. And at the same time, I think that. You know, I kind of think of vest jerseys as being kind of niche and kitschy, and then you just make a list of all of the moments they were involved in throughout baseball history, and you go, ah, actually, this is the this is the kind of random thing that just permeates baseball history, and you don't even realize it, and then it's like a, a thing, you know? And that's just basically what the entire history of baseball is. It's just these things stacking on top of one another, and yeah. one of them is the vest jersey. If you just look at World Series, like a handful of them have been won on a walk-off hit. And three of them have been done in vest jerseys, not in games where vest jerseys like were taking place by teams wearing vest jerseys at the time of getting the hit in game seven. And so I think it's got touchstone type relevance. I think it's got 
you know, all the aesthetic qualities that you would want. It's a dash of different, which we love to see in baseball and sports in general. And it's kind of really hard to screw up. Like the turn ahead, the clock jerseys are like really kind of out there, but they still kind of work. So it's, it's, it just goes to show that it's, it's really hard to, to make the vest look bad in baseball. Yep. I agree.